I just watched Charming the Hearts of Men, a movie on Netflix about the inclusion of the word sex in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The bill, as initially written, prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, religion, color, or national origin in public places, schools, and employment. Discrimination based on sex was not included. It was only added as an amendment in Title VII, which some historians claim was an attempt to prevent its passage, an attempt that failed politically, if indeed that had been the, uh, the purpose, but it succeeded immeasurably for half the population. More recent history, on June 23, 2022, one year before this podcast, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned 50 years of precedent, overruling Roe v. Wade. Since that time, as a recent report by the Center for American Progress explains, state laws have been rapidly changing as those hostile to reproductive rights have rushed to ban or restrict care as much as possible. At the same time, other states have worked to protect abortion rights. Overall, however, the decision propelled the country into a state of confusion and fear for medical professionals who provide abortion care. And as of today, more than 25 million women of reproductive age live in states that have seized on Dobbs to restrict access to abortion. The Supreme Court decision, which is fully named Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, resulted in a wave of legal and legislative challenges across the country. The language used in bans is often vague or confusing, leaving doctors unsure when or if they can perform abortion safely, even if a patient's life is at risk. Additionally, lawmakers have attempted to eliminate access to medicated, medication abortion with dire implications, some believe, for drug safety and the judiciary. Currently, 14 states have abortion bans in effect during any point in pregnancy, and many others have additional severe bans. Healthcare professionals that call these restrictive states home fear the legal consequences of keeping the oath they took as doctors. Following the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court has continued to show a limited and regressive view of the rights conferred by our Constitution. It has also become clearer that opponents of equality in Congress will continue to manipulate the government to further the second-class status of women and gender slash sexual minorities in America. Now, these are quotes from resources that I will put on the Woman Worthy Facebook page, but they are quotes which I personally agree. So, the ERA coalition is comprised of more than 290 national and local partner and supporter organizations across the country, representing millions of advocates working for the equality of all. The coalition works with legislators on the ERA amendment and other ERA bills, that's Equal Rights Amendment, of course. And the coalition claims there's been extraordinary progress, their words, in the movement toward full equality. Alice Paul began it all in 1923, and Congress passed the ERA in 1972. By 1982, only 35 states had ratified, and that's three shy of the necessary 38. 
But in 2017, Nevada ratified the ERA, the first state in 40 years to do so. Illinois ratified it in 2018, and Virginia ratified it on January 7th, 2020. On January 31st, 2023, the House of Representatives and the Senate introduced joint resolutions affirming the validity of the Equal Rights Amendment and removing the time limit from its preamble. The ERA coalition is working to ensure that both houses of Congress vote on these resolutions. The United Nations Population Fund, formerly United Nations Fund for Population Activities, and it's still known as the UNFPA, was established in 1969, the same year the United Nations General Assembly declared, quote, parents have the exclusive right to determine freely and responsibly the number and spacing of their children, unquote. Remember family planning, population control? In her March 16, 2022 address during the 66th session of the Commission on the Status of Women, UNFPA Executive Director Dr. Natalia Canham said, quote, bodily autonomy means my body is for me. My body is my own. It's about power and it's about agency. It's about choice and it's about dignity. Bodily autonomy is the foundation for gender equality and above all, it's a fundamental right, unquote. UNFPA is committed to promoting women's autonomy and decision-making on sexual and reproductive health, to protecting the rights of adolescent girls, and to advocating for policies that advance gender equality and reproductive rights. Okay, but what about bodily autonomy for we women beyond our reproductive years? How does it apply to us? Well, while the term bodily autonomy is typically associated with sex and reproduction, it does go beyond that. It encompasses the rejection of physical violence and abuse, control over movement and dress, and the overall control over one's life and future just because one is female. That's been the core of the protest by Iranian women over being told how to dress as opposed to being given the autonomy to choose how they wish to express themselves, religious beliefs or otherwise. Older women may still be vulnerable to forced sexual relations by a spouse, to rape, to violence, to abuse, including in nursing homes where they're often the most vulnerable. Is there something about women that invites control and loss of personal autonomy? Or should the only question be, what is it about men that leads them to believe that they have the right to control women? A November 2018 article in the UK edition of GQ magazine references Adam Jukes, a writer and therapist of more than 40 years, who for half that time specialized in treating men who abused women. Juke shares the common Freudian-based belief that it is the trauma of childhood and most crucially the relationship between a boy and his mother figure that steers the course of male psychology. 
Quote, for the vast majority of people all over the world, the mother is a primary carer, Jukes is quoted in the article. There is an asymmetry in the development of boys and girls. Infant boys have to learn how to be masculine. Girls don't. Masculinity is not in a state of crisis. Masculinity, he says, is a crisis. I don't believe misogyny is innate, but I believe it's inescapable because of the development of masculinity, unquote. In its basic form, the article continues, the theory is that as boys individuate and develop a sense of self, they have to separate from their mothers when they realize that they are not like them and they cannot, in Freudian terms, possess them. This repression marks the end of the Oedipus complex. In their anxiety, the boys then identify with the father, and it's here that they learn about what it means to be masculine. The cliches of masculinity being strong, fearless, and competitive, above all, not being like the mother, permeate a boy's lives. At this point, Juke says, a part of the male ego is identified with a penis, and the whole body can be identified with a penis and that's when you get masculinity, unquote. Well, feminist uh, critics have picked apart Freud's theories, but even his detractors concede the role of the unconscious and the problematic nature of boys' relationships with their mothers. The author of this article also quotes British author and psychoanalyst Susie Orbach, quoting her as saying, because the mother is the person we are most dependent on, the rage and fear at being cut off from her or the terror of mother's disapproval leads us to repress it. Girls grow up to be mums, so they internalize misogyny, but boys don't grow up to be mums, so they feel thwarted and their power comes from feeling they can thwart back. For a boy, it's so confusing." Unquote. Okay. So that's at least one psychological approach to why men want to control women. A sociological approach, though, goes way back. In fact, feminist writer Renee Gerlich writes in The Creation of Patriarchy, How Did It Happen? Quote, The origins of patriarchy in the West are generally traced to Mesopotamia, or the Fertile Crescent. By 4000 BC, or BCE, Men in Sumer, today's southern Iraq, had claimed naming and ownership rights over children and were gaining control over women's bodies in turn. In Mesopotamia, patriarchy become, became embedded with the transition from subsistence living to agriculture, the formation of cities, and the rise of militarism. And this seems to be a pattern. Societies become patriarchal either as they transitioned to agriculture or through colonization. Gerlich goes on to cite studies of several matrilineal and matriarchal societies, but then she notes, quote, after communities began to trace lineage through the paternal line, they also became patrilocal, in which a woman marries and lives with her husband's family, that is, with strangers, isolated from any who love her or will protect her, sometimes even from any who share her language, often abused and exploited by husbands and their families in patrilocal groups 
women do not possess their bodies, their labor, or their children who belong to their husband's lineage. Some patrilocal societies allow wives to leave, but they can never take their children with them. Therefore, most women remain, unquote. The article goes on to explain, quote, male solidarity and puberty rights were developed at this time, teaching boys to scorn feminine emotions, replacing them with hardness, self-denial, obedience, and deference to superior males, creating a bond not of love, but of power directed at transcendent goals, unquote. Womanhood ceased to be regarded in high esteem, Quote, in male-dominated societies, girls are humiliated, isolated, confined, allowed only small amounts of certain foods and drink, and taught that her body is powerful but contaminated. She learns she has the power to pollute. In such cultures, for example, menstrual blood is a source of horror and fear, unquote. Patriarchy then became embedded with the development of agriculture and population increase, which fueled territorial expansion and militarism, as I've said. So with the passage of time and more time and more time and the handing down of traditions from generation to generation, we finally come to the 20th and 21st centuries and find this. In 1971, Broverman and Broverman conducted what was then a groundbreaking study on the traits mental health workers ascribe to males and females. When asked to name the characteristics of a female, the list featured words such as unaggressive, gentle, emotional, tactful, less logical, not ambitious, dependent, passive, and neat. The list of male characteristics featured words such as aggressive, rough, unemotional, blunt, logical, direct, active and sloppy. Later, when asked to describe the characteristics of a healthy person, not gender specific, the list was nearly identical to that of a male. I find it personally very interesting that the question would be uh, gender identified, what are the characteristics of a male, rather than what are the, your characteristics. For example, um, I am a woman, I am not unaggressive, I'm not particularly gentle, I am emotional, I'm not tactful, I'm less logical, I have been ambitious, I'm not dependent, I'm not passive, but I am neat. Okay, under the male characteristics, I am aggressive, I am emotional, I don't think I'm rough, I am blunt, I am logical, I am direct, I am active, I'm not sloppy. So what does that make me? The study uncovered general, uh, the general assumption that being female is associated with being somewhat unhealthy or not of sound mind. Now, the concept seems very dated, but it was replicated in 2006, and those researchers had similar results. Again, the characteristics associated with a healthy male were very similar to that of a healthy, genderless adult. So what does this all have to do with we women over 60 and our bodily autonomy? Well, we still have to fight the psychosocial construct of being lesser than, less capable, less healthy, less strong. If we can't have bodily autonomy, especially in the area of healthcare, we are no longer full citizens. 
Studies have shown, for instance, that physically active women are healthier, not just physically, but also emotionally. And doubtless, they also exude a no victim here attitude that arguably dissuades would-be victimizers. You don't have to be a marathon runner, though. Research has also found that women who walk more slowly with shorter strides were judged by men to be more vulnerable to exploitation. So we need to walk purposefully, faster, and with good posture, if not with longer strides, if we happen to be like me, having shorter legs. <laughs> we need to speak up when confronted with controlling behavior and perhaps not try so hard to be people pleasers and instead concentrate on being me pleasers. And we need to be more aware of our own of our right to our own bodies, whether in the doctor's office, a hospital, or the bedroom. Our bodies may be changing, but our autonomy over them doesn't stop after we turn 60. Thanks so much for listening. Resources will be on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. Have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.